Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, what do we want to talk about today? Well, I I would be derelict in my duty if I didn't give our regular, semi-regular update on the uh, legal machinations of the Bachelor, Bachelorette universe. I love this. Sure. And I was in your camp for this because I know yeah. we pretty regularly talk about this on the show whenever there's a new season about to start. I also looked at the profiles of the contestants this time. Okay, so the new season of The Bachelorette this time started on Monday. The Bachelorette is Hannah. She is right? a former Miss Alabama. Mm-hmm. Very by all by all accounts, very sweet person. I looked at the uh, looked at the cast of the uh, gentlemen callers. No lawyers. No uh, real legal professional. No 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 paralegals. Right. No 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 other sort of legal professionals mm-hmm. in the in the crew. However. As pertains to me, the trade reporter, there yes. is a guy. His name is Luke, and he is an import export manager. What does that mean, do you think? Now, this, is a, this is a fun and tenuous angle. I like it a lot. <laughs> yeah, this is not. Now, I'm not it's familiar like, with that job as a title. I assume he is a customs broker. But do you remember? Um, I think it was a Seinfeld episode. Well, yes, this is like, the other thing. Yeah. He, this is the Art Vandalay. Art Vandalay is yeah. George's, one of George's uh, fictional sort of alter egos, and he's an importer exporter. I, it's just such a vague. Like yeah. I say, I assume it means he's a customs broker, okay. which is someone who obviously works at customs, like get things in and out of the uh-huh. country. Uh, but yeah, import export manager, very cool. Have you seen <laughs> that Fox has launched like a competing product that's like just The Bachelor in Paradise? It's like Paradise Hotel. Oh, yeah, Paradise Hotel. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't watched that yet. It looks like it's like it looks like they were like, what if we did The Bachelor, but everyone's drinking. Monster energy drink all the time. <laughs> what if? Nothing bad could happen there. What if? Half of America will tune in is what if. And anyway, Luke, the import-export yep. manager, uh, he got the first impression rose. So oh, he wow. is going to wow. be around for a while. Huge well, news. If, if, if history holds. So yeah, that's your regular update. I won't I won't regularly update anymore. I just wanted to alert everyone to the presence of a uh, international trade professional. It's on, very important. On the nation's uh, sort of canonical reality dating show. I mean, not to take us away from TV, which I could talk about the whole show. Yeah. But a little preview for later on. We're going to talk to Jimmy Hoover about uh, a big Supreme Court case that was ruled on this week. But the real key and the thing that I think is going to be interesting to talk about with him is that there's a split in the decision between Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Yeah, so we'll get a little insight into that. Mm-hmm. But before then, right? let's get to the news of the week. Let's do it. Um, we saw a really, really, really big jury verdict in California uh, on Monday. A California state court um, of a jury returned a two billion dollar damages total against Monsanto. Yeah, over um, uh, the claims that that Roundup, its weed killer, weed killer. is um, you know is giving people cancer. Uh, it's it's obviously we see a lot that these kind of huge verdicts don't always hold up on appeal, but it's certainly not a good. Th- sign of things to come from Monsanto yeah. uh, because of sort of, you know, there's a lot of other cases. From yeah, because it's not a one-off. That's the And we've talked about this case on the show before, but uh, can we just sort of set the picture about what's going on with Roundup in general? Because there are a lot of these cases. Yeah, so um, Roundup is made by Monsanto, um, which was, we should note, was bought by Bayer last year for $66 billion, so very large company. Um, they're facing thousands of similar lawsuits in state and federal court, claiming that basically the, the key ingredient in Roundup, um, glyphosate, is a carcinogen. It causes cancer, it increases the risk of cancer, and that they didn't warn people enough that they covered up that it did that and such and such. Um, the 
the company itself says that the chemical has been approved by the EPA. It's been approved by regulators all over the world. Mm-hmm. That it's safe. It wouldn't have been approved if if not. Um, and that there's just no reliable evidence to show that this is that this is, that there's any correlation between between the two. And even. Knowing that, uh, we have this $2 billion verdict on our hands. So what was going on in this case specifically? Yeah. Um, so the case, the specific case that we're talking about today was filed by a couple, Alva and Alberta Piliad, um, who they say that, that they used Roundup for years on their California property and that eventually both of them uh, were diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a very serious form of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, the case went to trial last month. It was a five-week trial. And... Um, as is so often the case in these these cases, that it was a sort of a two competing sets of experts who were talking about tell, painting these very different pictures of what the science says about the the connection between glyphosate and and cancer, yeah. um, about the the rate at which your skin absorbs it, the all sorts right. of different like very technical specific things. Um, at closing last week, uh, an attorney for Piliad said that Monsanto had spent decades suppressing the science, yeah. linking this, and that um, you know that that they had fed the EPA bad science. And he he basically said to jurors, "You should punish Monsanto for the the way the way that they have behaved here," and said, "Look, they've made eight hundred ninety two million dollars a year on this on Roundup. Yeah, treat it accordingly." Um, he asked for one billion dollars in in damages. Uh, and now on Monday, they came back with that $1 billion for each of the two people um, and then $55 million in in uh, compensatory damages. It's not the first big verdict we've seen. Uh, th- this, this is basically the third of these thousands of cases to go to trial. Um, and it's the third loss for Monsanto of those three. Um, earlier this year, a federal jury in San Francisco awarded $80 million to one cancer victim. Uh, last year, a state court awarded 289 million. That later was was pulled was sort of pared down to to 78 million by a judge, and it's on appeal now. But um, yeah, this is not the first we've seen of of these verdicts. I mean, the it's an eye popping number, two billion. And if our listeners, if this is sounding really familiar, we talked about this case before when there was fighting about um, geolocation targeted ads mm-hmm. that were going into the courtroom. Oh yeah, yeah. So this one really. You understand now that there's this huge verdict why there were fights about things like those ads. Sure, you fight on the margins once there's that much at stake. Right, because every advantage, you want every advantage on both sides. So, um, But will such a big number stand? Yeah, it's an interesting aspect of these products liability cases that... Uh, you do see a lot this uh, these huge eye popping numbers come out, and then they're later the judge in sort of their gatekeeper role, and then sometimes appellate courts will trim these down or overturn them entirely. Um, Dorothy wrote a really Dorothy Atkins, who's our reporter, who was in the courthouse covering this whole trial. She wrote a really interesting story about it. Basically, the way that it works is out of due process concerns. Um, the there, there's sort of like this ratio between compensatory damages, which is how much you actually spent, how much you were actually harmed yeah, by, right. um, by, by the thing that 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 hurt you, medical costs, also like mental anguish, things like that. But yeah. but it, it's a hard number. Yeah. And then there's this idea of punitive damages, which can be however much they want to punish right. the. So the it has to be this sort of a single digit ratio, like nine to one. Yeah. Um, so you can you can win nine times the amount that you won in compensatory damages in in punitive damages but but the compensatory figure here was only about 55 million so 
you could see there's a pretty serious case to be made that this will be, no matter what else happens, this will be pared down. And um, there's other sort of stuff in the ether about the about the Monsanto issue generally. In this case, what what are what's like sort of lurking as the next thing to watch here? Well, I mentioned earlier that there there are thousands of other cases, and this is just the third one to yeah. go to trial. So obviously, Monsanto is watching closely to see how juries are responding to this. Potentially, that could you know that could lead them to be more inclined to settle, or it could lead to you always watch these early cases to see how how people are doing. The other really interesting thing here is that um, Roundup hasn't been pulled from the shelves. It hasn't been; yeah. they haven't changed any of the labeling. So, in fact, they geo-targeted ads that say how safe it is. <laughs> right, yes. exactly. So it's it's not like it's not like a situation where they've alleviated the stuff that was, and we're just litigating things that are in the past. It's a it could be a continuing situation here. Um, and and a final interesting wrinkle I think to mention is that. One thing we talked about with the opioids uh, products liability cases that that some of these um, some of these drug makers have sort of lightly rumored that or lightly hinted that they're going to um, that they could potentially file for bankruptcy as right. a result of these as um, like an escape hatch to litigation. Yeah, exactly. All the stuff they face. As I mentioned earlier, Bayer bought Monsanto for $66 billion. So it's a huge global company. That's not really a situation here. So I think the the real key takeaway is that um, there are thousands of more cases like this, probably more on the way, and that we're going to keep seeing seeing verdicts come out. And if if the, you know what we've seen thus far is any indication, we could see some more big ones. Uh, thanks, Bill. Uh, for the next one, uh, we're going back to the exciting world of Trump and subpoenas. Uh, we talked about this two weeks ago, and I wouldn't we wouldn't tread back into it if it weren't uh, pretty interesting because sort of politicians keep sort of bickering about right. the power of Congress to subpoena the president and subpoena people in the president's inner circle. Um, but this week, outside of that whole thing, uh, we actually got a judge uh, talking about it a little bit in the context mm-hmm. of the Trump administration's uh, legal challenge. And spoiler alert. At this early stage, yet, uh, does not look too good uh, for the White House in its effort to block the subpoenas. So I sort of forget. We talked about it, like you said, fairly recently, but I sort of forget like what this actual <laughs> situation is. It's so is. easy to forget because I feel like some version of this is on the news 24 hours a day. Yeah, so uh, catch us up. Yes. Uh, well, we talked two weeks ago about uh, two congressional committees subpoenaing um, Deutsche Bank and Capital One for uh, Trump's financial records with them. Um, they were looking for information. He has done business with them, banked with them yep. in the past, and they were looking for documents about that uh, in the pursuit of sort of illicit financial activity by the president. This is a different case, but it's basically the same exact uh, thing. Uh, here, the same two committees have um, subpoenaed the New York accounting firm Mazars USA, and mm-hmm. these were Trump's accountants for many years when he was still in the private sector. And just like in the Deutsche case that we talked about, uh, the Trump team has sued uh, in federal court to block the subpoenas. They say um, they are not uh, they're not legitimate. Uh, we we talked about uh, in their complaint. They had basically said that congressional investigative power is very narrow. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, you know, Congress can only issue subpoenas in certain contexts. So it's the same. It's the same base argument. Same basic fact pattern. It just happens to be this is a little bit further along. It's a different financial tether to Trump. Uh, it's this accounting firm. 
Uh, anyway, this, the debate went into the actual courtroom beyond filings uh, this week. Uh, Trump's attorney uh, in this case is a man named William Consovoy. Uh, and he told a judge uh, who was overhearing the case, much as they said in the complaint, that the Constitution uh, does not give Congress the power to investigate potential presidential corruption because determining whether someone broke the law is a function solely reserved for the executive branch. That's a bold thing to argue, I would say. Yeah. How did the judge react to that? So the judge, uh, it's again, it's in D.C. federal court. The judge is uh, Amit Mehta. And he, um, faced with that argument from the Trump team, expressed uh, a good amount of incredulity. Um, mm. He sort of just pointed to a handful of times in recent history that I'm sure we can all recall that Congress investigated the executive branch for wrongdoing, exercising oversight and things like that. Um, this is a quote. He was asking a question of Consovoy, the judge. He said, is it your view that the Whitewater and Watergate investigations were beyond the authority of Congress? They were looking for violations of criminal law. Uh, the Trump attorney kind of dances around this for a little bit, um, only for the judge to very clearly say uh, they were inquiring as to violations of criminal law. It's pretty straightforward. That's what he told him. You got to think that they were that they knew that like a Watergate question was coming. Yeah, I mean, well, there's the Watergate and they, Whitewater, of course, is the Clinton administration investigation. Yeah. There's Benghazi's been what went on for like two or three years. Gun walking during the Obama administration, Iran Contra. I could go on. Um, and but uh, the attorney Consovoy, he just kind of get he kept ha presenting this very narrow vision of what Congress does. He's like their job is to write laws, which is of course true. Um, but the judge, again, repeatedly kind of kept citing Supreme Court holdings that say, yes, of course Congress has the authority to perform oversight. That's part right. of it. We have a whole committee. That's one of the committees uh, right. at issue here. They're the, they're the oversight and yeah, reform. It's right there committee. in the name. Right there in the name. Um, that it sort of exists separate. From his lawmaking function. Well, what's interesting when you sort of like pull back from this is that the the argument, um, what we talked about so much with the Mueller report was the idea that certain things, you know, that the president is is in his official capacity is sort of removed from the traditional, you know, investigative that, that, that a president can't be indicted. We talked a lot about that. Mm -hmm. And it leaves it to Congress. And now we have this situation where it seems to be they're seeking a like an ability to to re not really have congress over looking over them either yeah and it's uh, the 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 idea of like oh congress can't yes it's true that congress can't enforce the law in the way the justice department does right but it's like you know congressional findings you know they can you know sort of lead to indictments for other things or you can articles of impeachment against the president himself like that's a job of congress that arises out of investigative powers often so right. um the judge hasn't made a ruling yet, and he was, as judges are, sort of in high-profile cases like this, he made a statement, he's like, I'm not ruling from the bench yet, I will consider the arguments yeah. and all this, but if you read, like, I've read the quotes here, he a very, very healthy skepticism uh, of the way that the Trump administration was presenting it. A um, little more, just one more sort of item of color here. Uh, my personal favorite part of the hearing was during uh, one of these exchanges that they kept going around in circles about... Uh, Consovoy was telling the judge that Congress can only issue subpoenas in its role as a law writer. And he was saying that any law Congress could write that tries to sort of rein in the, con the, the conduct of presidents, that would be unconstitutional. And Judge Mehta, he, he sort of responded to that by saying, you don't suggest I have to undertake a constitutional review of legislation that does not exist which is wow. just kind of, it was just like, well, yeah, this is like any law they write might be unconstitutional. He's like, I don't care about that. Like, we're, we're not talking about hypothetical yeah. laws right, here. Right. Um, so I think we have an idea of where this judge sits. Um, both sides will no doubt appeal, but there's um, a hurry to 
um, at least move this along something of a quick track. The new Congress did just come in, but when these things, uh, you know, can get dragged out, the representatives for the House committees uh, basically said, we don't want to let them drag too much. This is a two-year legislative session, and we kind of need to get on with the business of oversight here. So uh, just another sort of turn of the screw in the uh, tale of the subpoena power of Congress. Donald Trump has appointed two conservative justices to the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. You'd think the two justices would largely wind up on the same side, but that's often not been the case. This week they disagreed again when weighing whether iPhone owners could sue Apple for operating its app store as a monopoly. We're joined today by our ace Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover to talk about the case and about the differences between the two newest members of the bench. Welcome, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. It's always great to have you on the show, especially when we want to talk about not just the case, but um, the personalities of the justices and how they're weighing in on things. Um, and I really want to get to that. But before we do, can you just set us up with the basics, um, the cliff notes of what this antitrust case is all about? Sure. Yeah. As you kind of mentioned, iPhone owners had sued Apple, um, basically accusing them of antitrust violations in the way that they were operating their app store. Specifically, they were complaining that, you know, the app store is the only place that they can download apps and Apple exercises, you know, price controls and collects a a 30 percent commission from developers, which are then passed on to the consumers and other pricing restrictions like, you know, you can only buy an app in the app store at 99 cents intervals and basically the consumers are saying all these restrictions are jacking up the price of the apps and because they can't go anywhere else apple has full control yeah i mean on its face like we're talking about an antitrust standing case which is um not the most scintillating stuff all the time but this is interesting because it does implicate the 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 nature of the relationship that sort of everyday consumers have to these tech behemoths and like the exact sort of arrangement between the customers and Apple is what was at issue here, right, Jimmy? That's right. I mean, it's in the words of uh, Justice Kavanaugh, it's kind of a classic antitrust claim where you're essentially uh, alleging that there's a monopolistic retailer who's overcharging for the price of their products. Uh, what's different here is it's in the you know, unique circumstance of a digital marketplace and a, a digital app store. So it kind of is the first uh, example of uh, this, the Supreme Court confronting kind of this modern uh, smartphone era and its implications for uh, antitrust law. Yeah, so basically the court had to decide, can the purchasers of apps just go straight to suing Apple over this, saying that they're getting price gouged because of what Apple's doing? Or does it have to be the app maker saying that Apple's causing these restrictions? And that was the big question to be answered, right? Yeah, and a, and a trial court judge had basically ruled for Apple and said, uh, you know, you the, you, the consumer, can't sue Apple for right. uh, this monopoly. It, if anyone's going to do it, under, you know, this antitrust pre- precedent from 1977 known as Illinois Brick, it has to be the developers because they're essentially the ones paying the price of the 30% commission and uh, suffering uh, from, you know, Apple's alleged uh, monopoly over this area. For a, uh, yeah. Yeah. For, a, for a deeper dive on that, I would just recommend, we did talk about this in detail uh, last year, I think it was in October, with Ian right. uh, Gershengorn, and I just thought, it, I, even at that time we remarked it was funny that that it was just a very uh, 
uh, sort of sharp illustration of the outdated nature of the case. It was like, this used to be about buying bricks to like build right. things with, and now it's about digital apps. Um, but anyway, those are that. that's sort of the main question here about who is a purchaser and who has standing to sort of bring an antitrust claim. Um, and we got a ruling this week, right, Jimmy? So how, how did it break down? Yeah, so the ruling is actually pretty straightforward. It, it was a five to four ruling with Justice Kavanaugh notably uh, voting with the, uh, you know, typically considered to be the more liberal members of the court in favor of the iPhone owners in this case and just said, hey, look, you know, they're buying directly from Apple via the App Store and so they can sue. Uh, Illinois Brick was, as you said, an example of, you know, uh, the state going after the uh, you know, manufacturer of a, uh, of bricks, but that was because it was being passed on through uh, the contractors. Who mm-hmm. and and Kavanaugh was basically saying this is kind of a one step process here. I mean, they're going right to the app store, paying Apple, and that's basically how it works. So Illinois Brick uh, does not preclude uh, the consumers in this case from being able to sue Apple. So in and of itself, this is a big ruling for people that follow antitrust cases, and and an, an interesting thing if you care a lot like I do and a lot of people do about the intersection of new tech and the law and how that's going to play out. Or if anybody who might want to bring a legal challenge to a tech company in this regard, like this ruling now says you, the consumers, can sue Apple for this specific thing. It's a big deal. But beyond it just being a big deal for that, the thing I'm really interested in is Kavanaugh was with the liberals, which is not something you normally expect. Sitting at the other lunch table for once. (laughs) That's right. And um, Gorsuch, didn't agree and pretty strongly didn't agree with us. So tell us more about what he said um, in his dissent. Yeah, so Justice Gorsuch fired off a, a dissent basically saying that Kavanaugh had gotten it all wrong when it came to the precedents and that really uh, the consumers in this case were relying on the kind of uh, pass-through theory of damages. That's, that's kind of a fancy legal way of saying, you know, the, the their basic underlying uh, theory of the case uh, that was expressly prohibited in the Illinois uh, brick decision in that uh, it was really the, I mean, Gorsuch was kind of agreeing with Apple in that it was really the developers who were uh, bearing the costs of these, you know, allegedly monopolistic overcharges and that if anyone was going to be able to bring a case here, it should be the developers. And Gorsuch basically said that, you know, it raises a lot of the same questions that the Illinois Brick case did, which is you're going to have this trial within a trial of how to split up, you know, the damages between the consumers on the one hand who bear the cost of the of the developers pass through, and the developers on the other hand. And he was saying that that was basically what the Supreme Court in uh, 1977 in the Illinois Brick decision was trying to avoid. And specifically, he basically calls out Kavanaugh for reading the precedent very uncharitably was a direct quote and implementing a, a quote senseless uh, yeah. basically operation of uh, the antitrust laws I, I mean as a court watcher and I'm sure you'd agree with this Jimmy anytime one of the justices says something else uh, in another opinion is senseless, senseless. it really gets you really kind of gets the juices flowing on thinking about how they're thinking about these things and, and each other um, and I think it's really interesting here because you would sort of expect that um, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh would be on the same side. They were both appointed by Trump on paper. Their resumes and background are really similar. Very similar. Um, so what do you make of this, the, this disagreement? 
Well, it's, I mean, it's just the latest uh, example in their first uh, few months together on the bench that they've disagreed. I mean, it happens to be the most high-profile example, but there have been, you know, a number of other cases in which they've ended up on opposite sides. I mean, you'll typically see, in, in a typical case, uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh more often votes with the Chief Justice, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, whereas uh, Justice Gorsuch finds himself among uh, the two other justices who are considered the more conservative members of the court, Justice Samuel Alito and uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. Yeah. And so, yeah, this basically uh, has has been a continuing trend since at least December and only uh, appears to be continuing. Yeah, it does seem like we're getting a, a much clearer picture than we had before about where they're going to shake out. And Kavanaugh, like you said, does seem to be more in that centrist area compared to what Gorsuch is doing. Um, are there any other notable things that they've disagreed on before this one? Yeah, I mean, it was just two months into the uh, current term when uh, Justice Kavanaugh kind of raised eyebrows when he refused to you know, sign this kind of provocative uh, what's known as a dissent uh, to a denial of certiorari when <laughs> Clarence Thomas accused uh, the other members of the court of essentially letting politics interfere with their decision to resolve an important abortion case. Yeah. That was December involving Planned Parenthood. Uh, you know, not long after that, there were a number of disagreements involving death penalty cases. Probably the most notable examples was when uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts, you know, joined the liberals in delaying the execution of a of a Buddhist man in, in in a Texas prison who basically had raised a constitutional claim because the prison had you know refused to let his spiritual advisor into the execution room, whereas uh, it allowed them for uh, you know other religions and. Uh, yeah. There were a number of mer- uh, there were a number of merits cases uh, last month as well in which the two ended up on opposite sides and uh, you know th- th- this Apple case is just the latest example and you know there are a number of cases that have yet to be decided this term so we may not have seen the last of their disagreements uh, this term. Sort of a digression here, Jimmy. Who do you think would win in an arm wrestling match? <laughs> You know, I don't know. They're both pretty sporty uh, jockey guys. I would give it to Gorsuch. I think he's a little taller. (laughs) He's got the leverage. Um, Anyway, um, so like you say, there are some high-profile cases still on the docket where some schisms could emerge. You talk to some people about um, what a disagreement like this means. Uh, what, What do we have in the way of a forecast? Is this a trend? Do we anticipate more splits down the road? What's up? Yeah, court watchers will basically duck the question and say that it's way too early to tell um, about, you know, how these two are going to end up or where they're going to end up in the course of their lifetime uh, tenure. That's good. That's important Uh, to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there have been a number of uh, justices throughout American history that have kind of drifted along the ideological spectrum on the court. But uh, basically, uh, we've already had quite a, a surprising record of disagreement in this first term alone. So I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to say that, you know, it'll, they at least have some, you know, uh, burgeoning differences. And this could basically, while it's interesting that, you know, Trump's two appointees of the Supreme Court uh, are disagreeing, it's also interesting in that, you know, it, it seems to be that uh, the the conservative flank of the movement of the of the Supreme Court, uh, you know, kind of anchored by Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, don't yet have the you know five votes uh, necessary to implement like you know pretty significant lurches to the right on areas like 
abortion or uh, other areas of the law uh, in, in, in which you could potentially see uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts kind of slowing down the pace of, uh, uh, of conservative change at the Supreme Court. So, Jimmy, as we watch the last few, uh, well, maybe not the last few, we've got quite a few cases left to be decided before the term wraps up. Are there any in particular we should look to to see if this schism continues? I mean, you could certainly uh, keep an eye out for the big census case that has to do yeah. with the Trump administration's efforts to put a question about, uh, you know, uh, citizenship on the upcoming 2020 census. It's not clear whether uh, there will be kind of a, a conservative split on that one, like we saw in the Apple case. But other cases that are potential contenders for disagreement between the two uh, happen to be the one uh, about, you know. Uh, pro-agency deference, our deference, were a big, uh, I've written about how uh, this, the, the seeming uh, surface level agreement between Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch on a question like Chevron deference or our deference yeah. could actually be more complicated than it seems in that Gorsuch seems to want to just totally overturn the Chevron decision, which is basically a helpful tool for agencies and administrative counties. <laughs> he hates it. Yeah. And Kavanaugh, meanwhile, has not exactly gone so far and could potentially be in favor of just curbing it and reining it in as opposed to uh, putting it in the dustbin. So that's another case to watch out for. It's called Kaiser versus Wilkie. Um, okay. There is another one about, you know, dual prosecutions. Uh, is it unconstitutional for uh, uh, the federal government and a state government to prosecute an individual for the same uh, crime uh, right after another? And had arguments, y you saw Justice Kavanaugh really pushing back against the argument that it was un unconstitutional because of so many years of Supreme Court precedent allowing for such successive prosecutions, whereas Justice Gorsuch, who typically we've seen has not uh, given as much weight to precedent as someone like Kavanaugh has, he said, why should we even tolerate you know, unconstitutional prosecutions for even one more yeah. day? in the face of all this precedent. So that is another one to look out for. All right, fellow Supreme Court nerds, there's at least three big things to watch to see if this really is a trend of, of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh going their separate ways. Um, thanks for explaining all this, Jimmy. I appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. show something offbeat and I would like to make it clear for our listeners this week that we vote on these and I was not the only person this isn't just me bringing this story to you mm -hmm. because let me just read the lead an attorney is facing disciplinary charges in Oklahoma's top court after he allegedly hand delivered a check smeared with fecal matter to the state bar association and asked that it be given to a certain lawyer it's a great story I'm excited to talk about it <laughs> uh, huge implications well <laughs> I mean, let me just get into it. Let me tell you what's going on. So there's a check. We, we have a check. We got a lawyer. We got fecal matter. We sure do. What else we got? <laughs> well, the Oklahoma Bar Association asked the state Supreme Court to discipline this attorney. His name is Mark Kendall Bailey, and he allegedly went into the Bar Association's offices with this check. Sure. Okay. And I don't want to get too graphic, but, you know, that's what the story is. So here it is. The check was described as having a pinched indentation and a brown damp smear across its front. <laughs> you you hate to see it. 
Revenge is a dish. They definitely hated to see it. Best served smelly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, do we have any? Uh, do we have any indication as to the motive? Sure. Uh, we, of we the do. offense. Um, so Bailey had this dispute with a former client that said that he had charged for work he didn't perform. Right. The client reported him to the bar, and bars often will um, resolve disputes of this nature. Yep. So the bar went through this process and said that Bailey owed him some money, and that's the check we're talking about. And he said, I don't owe you shit. <laughs> if I oh, gave, wait. If I gave you, you know money, what? it would be dirty money. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. He wasn't asking for that check to be directly handed to the client. Because the bar association's involved, they act essentially as a middleman. Sure. So it was all just passing through this bar association. And the person Bailey wanted to hand the check to was this woman who worked there. Her name's Lorraine Faribault. He had had some previous issues with this woman. Oh, And asked her to recuse herself from this current grievance over the Mm -hmm. fees. And she didn't. So here's why I didn't like her. I, you know, you think a poo check would be the most crazy thing in the story, but it's not. He didn't like Faribault because she had worked on a previous incident where he faced allegations he hit a woman with a vehicle during a dispute in a parking lot. And for the incident, Whoa. he faced felony assault charges. They got dropped when he took anger management, and the bar association was involved and offered him a private reprimand for the whole incident. Okay. And he still was mad at the bar. Okay. And then he walked. Okay. So Honestly, th- I, that doesn't sound like this guy. You know, I can't imagine this guy. <laughs> Super uh, out of character, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is scorched earth. I mean, it the, is. the idea that like all of this stuff is against him and they ch- apparently ch- tried to, uh, you know, do things quietly right. or whatever. And then he walks in there. Yeah, because he did great tanger management and they thought it was check. like a one off incident. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, my mind immediately with this went to I mean we'd all know what it was when we saw it but yeah. I'm not sure how you'd proceed other than being grossed out yeah. but I, I really sort of like the, the details of what the bar association did so they see this check They it's suspicious obviously mm-hmm. they then were talking to Bailey the attorney and said hey we think we know what's on this check do we're you gonna... just want to write a new check here <laughs> and, oh like it's an accident yeah <laughs> and <laughs> the idea, he, yeah. he denies that mm-hmm. it's actual fecal matter on the mm-hmm. check, but he does write a new one, and I guess he realizes like the he's been caught here, and he's not gonna it's not gonna get to who he intended. <laughs> he's been caught. So, he's been caught brown-handed. So, <laughs> so he writes the new check, and then he asks for the old one back, but the bar station says no, and they actually sent it out for forensic testing. I was about, I'm no joke. Like I was about to make a joke. Yeah, we got to send it to the lab. They literally they actually sent it to the lab. Sent it to that's the amazing. Lab. So that's sort of the punchline for me of, you know, I'm sure people and you wouldn't expect this in a bar association context, but I bet a lot of crazy stuff happens in a regular bar, in a restaurant, in a, you know, it but anything with too many customers coming in and out, crazy stuff can happen. Sure. But the fact that they kept it and sent it off for testing just to be sure before they proceeded with the rest of the discipline well, against this attorney. I think I mean, there's yeah. yeah, all the proof is in. I think well, I think they want to uh get to the bottom of it. They sure do. Yeah. And now we're at the bottom of our show. Yeah. So <laughs> thanks for being with me, guys. Thanks, Phil. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Jimmy Hoover, and contributing reporters, Kevin Penton, Brian Koenig, and Dorothy Atkins. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. We'd love it if you'd subscribe to the show, 
but also leave us a written review. It helps other people find us. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.